Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am vice president over at Autism Spectrum Therapies, part of the Learn It family of companies. Um, it has been a while since we've been here, and normally I tell you guys all the different things we do, the families we've served, and it's been, it's been pretty exciting. Uh, while we've been away, we've been doing a lot of cool things, expanding services, and now are officially serving over 2,000 families across the country um, who have children with autism, which has been a, a pretty amazing milestone for us. Um, to kind of help celebrate that milestone, we want to do something new on the show, and and uh, I, I wanted to kind of get an ongoing dialogue. We have these great conversations from guests all across the country who are giving us uh, a different perspective um, of how they view the world. Um, this may be autism. This may be treatment. This may be regulations. This may be how we kind of need to go about supporting one another as a community. Um, but one of the things that, that I wanted to bring to the table uh, a little differently is, you know, a, a different perspective on the world of ABA. And as I've talked about many times, you know, I view the world through an ABA lens. Um, but within the ABA lens, you know, I'm, I'm someone who is very hands-on. I'm someone who's very applied. Um, I, I don't have a research background. I'm, I'm not that type of person. Um, if anything, I find myself drifting more and more into the regulatory public policy um, side of things, as, as you guys have heard me talk about so many times. Um, so what I want to start doing is have, a, have an ongoing dialogue uh, with, in my opinion, one of the, the brightest, smartest, just most accomplished behavior analysts that, that I know that I get to talk to and really kind of bring some of the things that we talk about together to you every month. Um, so we are going to, on a monthly basis, be joined by uh, my colleague and good friend, uh, Dr. Hannah Rue, um, to give you a little bit about Hannah's background. Hannah is the Director of Research and Development um, here at Autism Spectrum Therapies, which is why I get to spend so much time picking her brain. Um, she assists staff here in designing and implementing uh, numerous research projects as well as training protocols across our organization. Uh, she's a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Massachusetts as well as a sort of board-certified behavior analyst. Um, she obtained her doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of North Dakota and completed her pre-doctoral training at the May Institute prior to joining AST. She played a leadership role at the National Autism Center and also served as the clinical director for the May Institute's largest special education school. Hannah has served as the chairperson on the National Standards Project Phase 2, and her current research interests include identification of evidence-based practice for treatment of ASD, investigation of behavior reduction procedures, and skill acquisition procedures. So I'm really excited to welcome Hannah to the show um, for the very first of our, our monthly conversations. Hannah, so glad to have you here. Well, that was absolutely lovely. Thank you very much for uh, such a great introduction. I appreciate it, and I'm really glad that we get a chance to uh, talk about issues, research, and um, treatment of autism, hopefully inform some of the listeners out there about some things that uh, can help them make some good decisions for their loved ones with autism and their families. Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, you're the last you know, sentence of your bio and, and your intro, you know, that, that's kind of a, what, what kind of sparked this for me is, you know, you've done so many presentations for, for AST, you've done a number for a lot of other groups on this evidence-based practice for treatment and, and, and what are the, the best practices out there, what are the standards we should be looking for. And it just kind of feels like a really great place for us to start because even as I say this, I, I realize that, 
I think that average BCBA out there doesn't even understand what that all really means. I mean, we've gotten into conversations, and I got into a conversation just last week with someone about the difference between evidence-based versus empirically validated and, you know, what what these things really, really mean. Um, And so, you know, I I guess – where I was hoping we could kind of start off is kind of for you to lay some context, lay some foundation here is, you know, you, you had this this amazing experience at the National Standards Project. Maybe you could kind of start off a little bit, giving us a little overview of maybe like what that was, what it was trying to do, and kind of what's been done to really evaluate on a broad scale like treatment for kids with autism. Sure. Well, what's been exciting in the past uh, five to ten years, I would say, is um, the fact that we've started to accumulate um, a number of single-subject research projects, which is really focused on behavior reduction and skill acquisition, a lot of work done by some fantastic behavior analysts. But we also have a lot of randomized clinical trials done by um, psychologists and researchers from different backgrounds. And so now what folks are trying to do, for example, at the National Autism Center and at places like the National Professional Development Center in North Carolina, um, is take a broad look at all of this research and try to synthesize it in a way to um, help folks be able to understand the current state of our field, that is, in terms of um, treating autism. And we also wanted to Um, specifically at the National Autism Center and with the National Standards Project, we wanted to provide accessible information. So those of us who are in research um, have been schooled on how to read and uh, evaluate the quality of science that's out there. Um, But educators, folks from different uh, professional arenas and parents um, don't typically have that type of training and background, and so it's hard for them to take in all this information. So what the different groups out there doing systematic reviews like the National Standards Project, we're trying to get all this information, put it together so that um, parents and other professionals can understand the current state of affairs and make some informed decisions. What we did specifically at the National Autism Center was we looked at uh, over a 1,000 peer-reviewed studies about treatments, uh, educational and behavioral treatments for autism, and uh, try to identify and group the, um, the interventions according to, you know, what the purpose of the intervention was, um, for example, maybe increasing expressive language or decreasing self-injury, try to group those um, interventions together and talk about the quality of the research and the quantity of the research. So to identify to professionals and parents uh, what we know is useful and will have an impact, a positive impact. And then we also wanted to identify the holes in the literature, that is where we need more information and more data Um, because we have an idea of some things that may be helpful, but maybe the research wasn't of good quality. Maybe there weren't enough studies. Um, And so it's also a roadmap for professionals to use the results of these different reviews to inform some of their research agendas. Um, So quite a number of goals and objectives there. But, um, again, if you look at any one of the systematic reviews, and there's been a number of them, uh, a lot of them have nice summaries that folks can read through to um, get at the answers they're looking for. So, like, I hear all of this, you know, and before we even get into what was identified and and what we as a field have kind of identified as effective. Like I, I just go to, I, I hear a thousand published articles. I hear a thousand studies, and I think to myself, so we've got a thousand things we reviewed that are all identified to be good quality studies. Um, like it, it seems like that's a big number for us to still not have a really clear picture. You know, if if I'm thinking about like, we're still arguing over whether or not a treatment is good or bad, or we still are kind of arguing over maybe like, should this be funded or is this necessary for this kid? You know, why, why is that? Like what, what's that gap when we, when I hear a number like that, that seems pretty big to me. Yeah. I mean, I- 
It, it is. It's, it's a large number. Um, I should note that we're talking about the literature for uh, most oftentimes uh, children and adolescents. So that doesn't even get to the adults with autism, which there's a paucity of research there. And it, it's mm-hmm. I'm just I'm dumbfounded by the fact that we don't have a lot of research there. But so the, for, the most of these studies are focused on kids. Now, you said a thousand good quality articles. That's the problem is we have a thousand articles, but with variations in the quality of the science that's being done. And so all of these systematic reviews that are taking these large numbers of research articles are applying um, uh, different um, uh, different rubrics to determine the quality of science. Um, so we have some really strong findings in terms of, you know, applied behavior analytic strategies to decrease aggression. Um, but what we may find as quality in our research group, like the National Autism Center, might differ from the quality rubric that um, the folks at Vanderbilt who did a, a review. Um, so in terms of their rubric, quality research requires randomized clinical trials. And if you know anything about applied behavior analysis, the vast majority of the research is not in randomized clinical trials. That is large numbers of kids with an experimental group that undergoes a treatment in a control group. The vast majority of our research is done with a handful of kids um, in different designs where we measure their progress, their response to intervention across time. So we don't have a control and experimental group. And so there's still even argument at the basic level of what is quality research and what can, mm-hmm. what research can we use to inform funding and things of that nature. Um, so I think that's one of the barriers um, amongst you know, professional researchers, depending on where you come from and your background, what you perceive as being quality. So if we are, you know, you, you just said it, is most ABA research is not going to be randomized trials. You know, it, it's, so how do we get past that? You know, is it, is it that we need to start doing randomized trials and we just need to embrace that and simply say this is the way this needs to be done? I know there's a lot of concerns about doing that. Um, is, is there another way to kind of get beyond this gap then in terms of, I, I guess, you know, we think not to get too ABA nerdy for everyone, but like I think about like we need to operationally define quality, and clearly we have different operational definitions. So how do we get past that? Like what what what's what are what are our potential answers to that? Yeah, I think you know, as with anything, I think the the answer is probably complex, and I think um, yeah. as we move along, we'll evolve as a science. So I think even. Um, you know, single-subject research is coming along because we're spending more time looking at um, integrity, so how we actually implement things. Um, we're looking at reliability. We're looking at external validity, how things generalize. We're also taking a closer mm-hmm. look at social validity. Um, so I think all of those things are evidence that our science is evolving. Um, but I also do think you know, where there is a, where there is a value for single subject research. Um, I think that that points us in one direction, but then I think it does open up the field for opportunities to look at larger, um, randomized clinical trials. Um, so th- mm-hmm. there is value in that as well. And so I really do think that, um, we need both. And mm-hmm. the problem with, one of the inherent problems with autism and in doing randomized clinical trials and things of that nature is the heterogeneous nature of autism. So, you know, mm-hmm. you meet one kid with autism, you meet one kid with autism. Um, so I think as we get better, um, you know, identifying the different autisms, if you will, and the DSM-5 indicates, you know, one diagnosis of autism with different severity levels. I think 20 to 30 years from now we're going to see different autisms and maybe different um, mm-hmm. prescriptions, if you will, for um, our recommendations for intervention depending on the characteristics of that individual and maybe even, you know, the genetic underpinnings. Um, but I think there's room for, for both lines of research, and I think behavior analysts uh, would be good to um, – get into the groups that include multidisciplinary folks, you know, folks from the medical profession who find randomized clinical trials so valuable and who oftentimes lead the way in determining what is funded and in guiding insurers and things of that nature. Um, but I think we should also keep up um, and even advance the, the single-subject research so that as we mm-hmm. take a look at the broader 
research, you know, these these groups like the National Professional Development Center and the National Autism Center, we can continue to synthesize the research to make use of all of it to inform uh, treatment. <clears throat> so, you know, when we think about kind of the, the synthesizing the research and kind of, you know, as you said earlier, you know, you've kind of, these projects really are kind of taking all of this information out there and really organizing it in a way um, to come to these summaries that that we can really more easily, whether it be clinicians, whether it be parents, et, et cetera, kind of process and understand. You know, one of the mm-hmm. things I think you alluded to already, which I think is interesting and, and, and kind of a, I think a, probably a misconception for a lot of people is, you know, if, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of these projects aren't necessarily saying ABA is good for autism. They They go deeper than that. You know, I think you alluded earlier that, Behavior intervention is good for behavior reduction or it is good for expressive language acquisition. You guys, these projects kind of dig deeper. They're not just this broad brush that say, okay, ABA is good for everything. They actually are focused in on specific skills for for kids to be learning or, or specific behaviors to be looked at reducing, correct? Yeah, actually, that's one of the major points that I make um, when we review the results of the National Standards Project. Um, nowhere on the on the list of uh, effective interventions do you see ABA. It's actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I think so many people still hold that misconception of what applied behavior analysis is, and so I try to educate folks on exactly what our science of behavior is. And when we talk about what has been identified as having good quality evidence to support its use, I'm talking about very specific techniques, Um, you know, things like uh, video modeling or live modeling, um, things like um, differential schedules of reinforcement. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. one of the issues within behavior analysis is actually how um, how to hone in to those specific responses to interventions. Oftentimes we publish research that has an intervention package, so you might see things like um, prompting and differential schedules of reinforcement um, and then maybe something like a timeout procedure used to change, you know, change behavior. And it's really hard to nail down exactly what component of that uh, behavioral intervention package is the effective ingredient, if you will, if you can isolate that. Um, and so I think there's even been some argument among behavior analysts about how to analyze, the, you know, on a microscopic level, if you will, the, the details of, of the impact of those different techniques. Um, so, yeah, I never talk about applied behavior analysis um, as being uh, an effective treatment for autism. I talk about the techniques that have been developed within our science having an impact on different um, uh, disruptive behaviors or, um, or improving skill acquisition. Uh, and that's typically how I like to talk about it so that folks um, have a deeper understanding of, you know, all of the techniques that are available to clinicians within this field. You know, I, 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 there's something you said. I think it's the, it was probably the video modeling, you know, and it kind of got me thinking. It's like I, I feel like there's such a challenge. You know, if I'm, if I'm, I'm a parent, I'm, I'm a BCBA, whoever I am, however I'm looking at, at this child's program, it, I, I feel like we, we tend to make these overgeneralizations to say my child's program is good or mm-hmm. my client's mm-hmm. program is good. And, and what I just what just rang in my head as you were kind of giving this description is like an element of my client's program could be good while an element of my client's program could be bad. And then mm-hmm. it's almost like there's like if, – if I think about kind of like you said, there's a not just a treatment package, but maybe this – general treatment plan has 10 different goals, 15 different goals. There may be a different Mm -hmm. treatment package associated with each goal. I almost have to evaluate 15 different treatments using the mindset you just kind of described of how this research is being kind of synthesized. This child could have 10 good treatments, five bad treatments, yet we're now trying to evaluate the effectiveness sometimes in in other forums of ABA and it's like it's almost like ABA is more effective than less effective or this is like 
more good ver- versus more mm-hmm. ineffective. You know, it, it seems mm-hmm. like a weird paradigm mm-hmm. that we're almost kind of digging into. We're going down. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I think you hit it exactly. I think that's one of the major struggles um, as we try to promote our science and say, yeah, this is actually better than doing something like, you know, administering camel's milk or clay baths or, you know, something absolutely ridiculous or even something maybe with, um, you know, some research but not as great quality research. It's because you can't compare one kid's program, you know, if you have a 30-hour-a-week program for a three-year-old and you're looking at pre-academics and some skill acquisition, maybe some toileting program or something like that, and then you have a 10-year-old where you're looking at more complex social skills and more um, intense, you know, academic things and um, uh, you know, all of those things, you can't compare those two programs necessarily because um, you're going to be using different strategies. There's different goals. There's different levels of complexity. Uh, so I think you're, you've nailed it right there. I mean, that's just it. You have numerous different interventions happening at the same time, and you have to be a skilled clinician to be able to know how to assess, you know, that child's responding to your programs. Um, that's why we have to keep such a close eye on, you know, our data collection, our individualized data collection. Um, and I think it even to even take it a step further out, not only are we, you know, now focusing on that child and their skill deficits and, you know, their strengths and weaknesses, um, but I know what we're doing now more at AST is also looking at the family unit because that has such an impact on these interventions. So because we rely on mm-hmm. our family members to actually, you know, make use of our skills, uh, make use of our programs to generalize these skills. Um, and so one of the big pushes is to go beyond that client and to go, you know, bigger into the family uh, so that we can see if, you know, we're having an impact on the quality of life for this child and for their family. Um, so you're right. It gets very complex and it can become very challenging um, when you're trying to look beyond just one client and one family if you're looking at a whole caseload or a whole agency or a whole, you know, sample of kids uh, with autism. Yeah, you know, it just it's one of those things where like I, I kinda go into this and say like I'm I'm almost not even thinking about comparing two kids, you know, I'm not even thinking about comparing mm-hmm. two three year olds or an, an eight year old or two year old. And I almost am just kind of going down to like if I am looking at this kid and how do I evaluate like I, I think to myself of okay, I'm the person who's reading a progress report for a kid trying to authorize treatment or I'm the parent mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. given my kid binder and I'm looking at um, God, I said binder. Probably everyone's on like electronic data collection <laughs> system now. I'm looking. I'm looking at the portal. Or, or <laughs> We've all had three. It's always going to be. We've all been there. It's always going to be a binder to me. It's always going to be a binder yeah. to me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at my kid's binder, and it's like, I, I just I think about how do I look at is this. You know, if I think about the research component and how we evaluate what is quality and what isn't, like you almost need to it, – it's like it, I hate to do this because this goes against everything I believe. But, like, <laughs> there's a part of me that's like you almost need to create a score. And it's like, great, we have 15 goals or we have 15 treatments going on, mm-hmm. and I need to create a score and be like, great, I'm plus four. How do I become mm-hmm. plus Eight, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I, I just—it strikes me as like because like that one goal is great, but it doesn't define a program. And I've—I've I've right. never believed you should evaluate a program simply by this is the number of goals we met. Like I, I just don't believe that because I think people—it's all about how you write your goal. You know, I could write a goal that says you're going to receptively identify the letter A, or I could say you're going to receptively identify the alphabet. I could work right. on an alphabet goal right. or I could be working on a behavior reduction goal for a kid who's engaging in, you know, 100 instances of SIB a day. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, the, the scope of these goals are so different. But, but with all that said, when I think about it from a research point of view, I almost feel like you almost have to kind of put some weight into lining up these different treatment goals and looking at a kid's program and his actual, this kid's individual outcomes a little bit that way. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I'm not no, always no, no. sure. Am I, you know, it's, this is a stream of consciousness <laughs> right now, like purely from listening to you. 
<laughs> no, I mean, and that's just it. There, there's no easy answer. There's no one way to do this. Um, and and I think it's just like I was saying earlier with the heterogeneous nature of autism, you have yeah. a million different presentations. And so that requires a million uh-huh. different types of programs. And so then how do we come up with some sort of rubric that helps us identify this is quality, you know? So, um, and just like what you were talking about, like you have these 15 different intervention programs for this one kid mm-hmm. um, and, you know, maybe half are going really well and then half are not. And what does that mean? You know, um, mm-hmm. and for some kids, that's huge. Like that's tremendous progress um, for other sure. kids. You know, if some of the programs are falling off, you know, it's, it's, you know, really traumatic for the family. So um, I think getting um, looking at the larger family unit too and trying to determine how our programs are having an impact there can also be helpful in, you know, if we're coming up with some score or some way to, to talk about quality too. Um, Cause it's not, you know, it's not just that kid's, you know, daily trial number or, or something like that. But, um, I, you know, I do think we have to get better and I think we're evolving, you know, we're, we're understanding better this need to come up with a way to um, capture that individualized programming in, in how this kid is responding to that um, in mm-hmm. some way, share that in a way that's meaningful to, you know, other professionals and to insurers and, you know, funders and, and, and things like that. We have to get better at that. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement um, there. And I think that's something that as a, as a field um, we should be focused on. You know, in the attempt to kind of stay somewhat linear, and I say somewhat because <laughs> um, there's so many tangents I want to go off on, and we've got a lot of a lot more shows to be able to do that. You know, mm-hmm. when I when I kind of think about what you're saying here, you know, and, and looking it back at from this like broader research, this macro research point of view, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. again, I don't think we ever kind of fully answered, or, or at least I haven't fully asked the question of, you know, you've got these, these different, you've, you've mentioned a few different projects out there, a few different uh, groups out there, you know, what, mm-hmm. in, in summary, like, what is it that people have identified as quality? Is there any agreement where people said, have said like, Hey, this is quality. We can agree that these are quality so far. Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that I like to talk about is the Missouri State Guidelines. Uh, There's a fantastic group out there, and if you just Google Missouri State Guidelines, or if we have notes under the podcast, we can provide some links there. But um, what what that group has done is, is they've taken the results of all of these systematic reviews, and I think there's been five very large reviews that have been done in in Mm -hmm. recent years. And essentially what they say is that a number of the techniques in applied behavior analysis have been identified as very effective. Um, so the, you know, the use of differential reinforcement and the use of, um, you know, limiting attention or, you know, withdrawing attention um, and shaping and prompting and things like that, all of those uh things that behavior analysts learn, you know, like their first semester in graduate school or, you know, their first few months on the job if they're working with a youngster with autism, all of those things have been identified as being effective. Um, And then, you know, the level of, um, in terms of identifying um, the professionals who have had an impact, like looking for a a board-certified behavior analyst to work on your team to use these tools. All of those things, those things have been identified as being effective. So there's there's a lot that we do agree on. Behavioral interventions Mm -hmm. have a good impact on kids, um, and that Mm -hmm. means a number of different strategies. where we disagree, I think, is the the number of hours, um, exactly how to program for a kid, you know, uh, those sorts of things, and whether or not something like the Early Start Denver model or DIR, some of those things, are those just as effective? Um, I think that's where folks like the Vanderbilt Group have a little trouble because there's not enough randomized clinical trials. But I think there is firm agreement that techniques coming from applied behavior analysis can help to reduce disruptive behaviors, can increase adaptive behaviors like communication and social skills. Um, And 
I think that's something that we've we've confirmed repeatedly in in single subject research as well as in the available randomized clinical trials. So to to throw it out there, just because I want to you know make sure we give it all the kind of the a good definition of kind of what these studies are as well. Um, they were they looking at alternative interventions, you know, and I, I use alternative just simply as not ABA. Were they looking at mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. floor time, RDI, mm-hmm. equestrian therapy, all of those things as well in in their um, in in the pool of research that they were looking at? Absolutely. So some of the some of the more outlandish things, like I said, like the camel's milk or whatnot, there's no uh, published research or data available. So we, you know, the vast majority of the research groups, we couldn't right. assess that because there's no data. But there, there is data on some of the the other things that you talked about, um, such as floor mm-hmm. time and um, and animal assisted therapy and hippotherapy and things of that nature. And we don't have any good data to support. Um, a lot of of those um, interventions, if you will, I say that mm-hmm. with quotes. Um, there's just no data to support it, whether or not um, uh, it's low-quality science um, or lots of studies that were well done that just found that, you know, certain strategies aren't working. Um, sure. So even things like the gluten-free, casein-free diet, you know, we don't have any um, quality research to support that. You know, kids sitting on um, balls are using the weighted vests. Um, we, we have a number of studies that have demonstrated that's not effective in decreasing challenging behavior or increasing, um, you know, social communication. So there are a number of things out there that uh, folks have reviewed, different research groups have reviewed and have identified as not being effective in the treatment of autism. So I'm going to put you on the spot because, you know, because I love you and I love talking to you about all these things. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've, I've had people on the show and we have listeners who are going to say, uh, Dr. Rue, my kid – had that gluten casein free diet, and let me tell you the impact mm-hmm. it had on my kid. My kid, we did mm-hmm. the weighted vest on this client of mine, and it was amazing. You know, like mm-hmm. how how do you weigh? You know, I, I you look at the world through this macro research data point of view, and and there's this other end of the spectrum, which is very much of like, but let me tell you about this person who was impacted in this mm-hmm. positive way by that. How do you balance those two things out? Well. You know, having actually been in the field in practice for a number of years, yeah. um, uh, every time I worked with a family and what they wanted to do is do the weed investor, do the gluten-free, casein-free, yeah. I just asked them to take data on it. And, you know, mm-hmm. if there was ever, uh, you know, and, and so I'd sit down with them and say, what do you think this is going to help? Is this going to help the, the hyperactivity that is, how much they're jumping on the furniture or how much climbing, or is this going to help uh, decrease tantrums? We identify that behavior, um, and then we measure it over time. You know, so if something mm-hmm. were to be effective for that individual child, I'm not going to argue good data. Um, if we have data to yeah. support it, you know, if if the basket weaving under the water or the dolphin therapy worked and we had solid, reliable data, I am all for it. Um, and that's what I would tell families. And, you know, we yeah. I actually spent quite a few years reporting that type of data with families. I've never personally seen um, a lot of these things have the impact that the families thought, you know, would have the impact. But again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue data. So if you came to me and said, look, this is what a weighted vest did for my yeah. kid. Um, okay, good. That's, that's individualized, solid data. Then, then that should be part of your program. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I know our, our listeners know my opinion. I've, you know, I probably have a, a, a looser opinion on some of these things uh, than you, just because I'm not that research person. I'm, I'm, I'm very much always been like in the field, and but you know, I, I share your opinion about data, and, and if something mm-hmm. works, let's roll with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that for me, it's always been a big, and, and I've said this with a lot of folks on the show is. You know, it's it's about also other environmental factors. You know, what I love about, oh, yeah. you know, I use the weighted vest as my example is, you know, that weighted vest, I actually believe for some kids can be really, really effective, but how and when mm-hmm. you use it is every bit as important. And that's where I think a, a behavior analyst can be so impactful in that multidisciplinary approach with that OT. And so is it that the, kind of like what you said, I kind of bring it back to like treatment package, 
the weighted vest mm-hmm. part of this treatment package worked really, really well. And that's where like these approaches kind of blending can work so great together because, you know, whether or not you use the weighted vest before the behavior or after the behavior could be what the difference is. And, mm-hmm. you know, you and I would be like, no, 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 don't use that as a response. We're going to use that as an <laughs> antecedent strategy. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, I've told, and that's the other thing I've told families, um, you know, if kids find comfort or, um, or somehow um, uh, just enjoy these things, then use them as reinforcers for appropriate behavior. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I yeah. like to get a massage and a pedicure or whatnot. Is that therapeutic? I don't know, <laughs> but I enjoy it, <laughs> you know. So why can't our kids so – I had someone ask, well, you know, I shouldn't get, a, you know, a, pet, a family pet or whatnot. I was like, no, of course. What I'm saying about animal-assisted therapy is the therapeutic value of it. But quality of life is something else. If you like being wrapped up in a blanket, then go ahead and do it. You know, but just like you were saying, totally. make sure that it falls appropriately so that you're not necessarily reinforcing yeah. tantrum behavior or something. But, yeah, anything that's not going to cause any harm or um, additional stress yeah. or, you know, impact the family in a negative way, you know, then we'll certainly enjoy it. It's fine. Yeah. 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 Good. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I and, and I enjoyed putting you on the spot, so I got my reinforcement <laughs> out of our uh, of our conversation. So that's good. Hey, if you want to eat gluten free cookies, go ahead and have at it. You know. <laughs> the the gluten free rice crackers at Trader Joe's are delicious, um, and I do mm-hmm. recommend them for mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. See, no problem there. <laughs> <laughs> I um. I was going to uh I was gonna ask you something and then I started laughing and I kinda of lost my train of thought. Um <laughs> no, I um <laughs> um you know, going going back to this broader research point of view and, and um and it's it's nice to kinda of know the the whole scope of everything that you guys and these different studies have looked at. Um you know, I'm just kind of curious again you you look at these things, you know, there, there's kind of two perspectives that, that I'm always curious about. And, and you talked about, okay, great, we can use this research um, component and we can kind of then argue like the treatment effectiveness. And I, and I think you already referenced the health plans. And, you know, as I, as you know, I've, I've spent so much time talking to health plans in, over the last like six, seven years. One of the things that I'm finding more and more interesting is the um, the, the treatment effectiveness um, and these conversations going back to school districts. And, um, and I'm a little curious about, you know, you mentioned before this idea of like maybe disagreements over about treatment intensity as it relates to Vanderbilt versus another program. Um, I, I think about kind of the, the academic arena, and I use the word academic very broadly here, is, you know, a lot of our families, a lot of, of families are thinking about, you know, I, I worry about my kid at school. We we have concerns over his IEP. We have concerns over these things that are happening in his classroom. Um, and they go beyond just, you know, is my child learning? It's, you know, is my child socializing? Is my child um, engaging in challenging behaviors? Or, or are they even um, at a point where they can really actively engage in school? Um, you know, for me, I, and I think for most of our listeners, it's really clear to be able to say there's this behavior problem how do we tie this to a health plan? Or, hey, my child isn't speaking. How do we tie communication back as a core deficit to a health plan? It, it seems like it's getting murkier as you try and make these dis, have these discussions in a school system, and then you try and think about what is an effective treatment from an educational point of view. And so is there any kind of like bridge um, – any type of kind of guide that you know to take this from to that um, and and have this uh, this research kind of guide some of the things um, a family looks at or maybe even a school looks like in terms of how to guide educational um, interventions. Yeah, you know that's one of the things that I think so many folks do struggle with um, that educational piece versus the you know the the health plan piece. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, it, it, it's all the same thing. I mean, you know, we need, we need these kids to gain these adaptive behaviors right. to become independent folks. And we all agree on that. Yeah. It, you know, it comes down a lot of times to the budget and resources and who's going to provide what. But 
you know, especially with the younger kids, I think if you take a look at the strategies that have been identified as being effective, one of the things that, you know, schools provide are, you know, the speech therapy and the OT and the PT. Um, And if we think about everyone's objective is trying to get that kid to be independent in the classroom setting, Mm -hmm. um, we need to provide them with these prerequisite skills. Um, And so to get them independent in the classroom, we have to make sure that they can communicate, that they can participate in self-care skills because going to the bathroom happens at school and all of those things. Um, And Mm -hmm. from the health plan perspective, you know, you're thinking long-term, you want this to be an independent individual, you know, and, and there's many reasons to, to focus on that from just having, you know, a person with the best quality of life that they can have to um, the cost-saving measures in terms of having an independent adult. Um, mm. So, again, I think you can take the, the results of this research and talk about how um, to promote independence. And, you know, there's still going to be a lot of overlap. You can argue for both ends. I think we're, I think there's still a lot to be done in that arena into how folks can better understand um, how to use this and why it's important to have, you know, certain programs in schools um, that may overla- yeah. overlap with what's done in a, you know, in a clinic setting or a home-based setting um, and how both, uh, you know, agencies or, or both areas can benefit from um, collaborating on on these mm-hmm. on these goals that are very similar. Yeah, I don't know if there's any. I don't know if that answers any part of your question or makes any sense at all. But I think it's it's really complex, and I think we have a lot of work yet to do in that area to help all of those folks understand the importance of everybody getting on the same page with providing evidence based interventions to get an independent person functioning. Well, it just, you know, it just strikes me as the, you know, I go back to the point you made about, you know, the differences with Vanderbilt and, and how they maybe view Early Start Denver or how they view maybe number of hours. And, you know, it just, it gets me thinking about, okay, great. You've got this, we've got this intervention strategy. We've got a concept. We know differential reinforcement works for the following things, and we're going to prescribe that for a kid with autism. And you know, and, and I and I asked the question, and, and you kind of gave me the answer. I, I I knew you were going to give me, which is you know, in short, you know, it they they really are all lumped together. Like there isn't academics or education versus health. Like the research looks at a kid. Mm-hmm. The research looks at a person mm-hmm. and says, what is this person's needs? Where I where I continue the struggle, and you know, to me, the funding side of this matters so much because those mm-hmm. are the conversations I have every day. You know, and it's I spoke to a very seasoned behavior analyst. She's been in the field longer than I have, um, working in the school system, working with the healthcare systems, and um, she spoke to her last week, and she was completely and utterly confused by this whole situation, this whole line, what, where, Mm -hmm. what goes where? And I'm like, you, you've been in the trenches, you know, this world in some ways, you know, this world better than I do. And if you're lost, you know, that tells me that a lot of other people are going to be lost in all of this. And I, you know, I go back to that perspective of, you know, it comes back really down to regulation as much as anything is, Mm -hmm. you know, what is appropriate, what is least restrictive, is a teacher implementing DRA as part of a kid's behavior support plan the same thing as a paraprofessional one-to-one implementing it? And is that the same thing as an ABA-trained interventionist implementing it? It's like, Maybe that's that mm-hmm. fidelity of implementation. Maybe there, there obviously are some other environmental factors of whether or not someone in front of a classroom versus someone right next to you. Obviously, kids' level of independence. I mean, there's so many variables, but it's like I look at the research and it says, the research says this is effective, but then what we do with that from an implementation point of view is so diverse, and we're all then saying, well, but the research says DRA is effective, and I'm doing DRA, so I'm doing what I'm supposed <laughs> to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just struggle with that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a whole area now of implementation science. So, 
yeah. and I think that, that that's where we've grown to, and I think that's where the, the folks at um, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill have moved to. So, yeah, okay. we have research to support this. We know this is good. How do we implement it? How do we get funding? How do we get folks trained? And how do we get um, integrity on the ground every day and who should be doing that? So I think implementation science is the next area where we start we need to pull some data and show, you know, this is how we go uh -huh. from, from research to practice. Um, because we know what works now. Um, how do I get you to do it? Who's the appropriate person to do it? And what are the best resources that are going to make it efficient and effective to implement it with this kid in this classroom? Um, yeah, I, I think that's where we need to, to push. And I can see, you know, where funders get data and, you know, um, they, they get data from a paraprofessional who maybe didn't have quality training on how to implement something and it mm -hmm. looks like it's not working and you get a professional that goes in there and says, well, but, you know, it's because it's not really happening. Um, this is not what it should right. look like. So, yeah, I think there's some quality checks and there's a lot of area for research in terms of how to get this into the hands of folks that really need to use it where we can really see a difference. Um, and I can imagine that that would be hard for medical directors and different insurance agencies or whatnot, you know. They're accustomed to a certain type of information being valuable, and when they look at, you know, single-subject research graphs or something like that or line graphs that we produce as behavior analysts and it doesn't look great, they don't know how to assess that, you know, what's gone wrong. Is it the quality of implementation, the person who's doing it, like you said, so many environmental factors, um, oftentimes, you you know, you can just get a refusal to continue with that program. We're not going to fund this. It doesn't look like it's working well. Maybe that's because the implementation is not right. So I think there's a lot to be done in that so, area, too, to show that. So you've never used the term um, implementation science in any of our um, conversations. And, like, by no means <laughs> is it this, like, the concept is by no means, like, kind of, groundbreaking because I, you know, I know it's like, oh, we're talking about fidelity of implementation, but like, mm -hmm. but my mind goes so much bigger than fidelity. Like I want to start talking to mm -hmm. you about, I mean, immediately, and we're not going to go down all these paths today because this is, uh, this is really, we're at the end of our, of our time together. Um, but like, as mm -hmm. I think about kind of like where we need to go in our, in our ongoing conversations in the coming months, like, I think about supervision, and I'm thinking to myself, well, mm -hmm. how you go about supervising these programs is part of that implementation science. I go and I think mm -hmm. about, well, how are these, you know, how is the actual fidelity? What kind of fidelity should we be looking for in terms of these things? What is, should we be comparing it to part of the implementation science? You know, and, and all of these different things about, like, how you actually implement this research and what are we actually doing um mm -hmm. you know i i think about the concept of um you know what comes to mind for me is something peter gerhardt um has said in a few presentations i've seen he's like you know everyone wants to like think outside of the box and it's like mm -hmm. no you need to learn the box inside and out be perfect <laughs> yeah. with the box and then maybe we'll give you permission to think outside of the box but like make sure you know how to do what we need to do first and then if it's not working we'll go in these other places and it, it kind of gets me thinking like i mean i i could go in down the path of how and, and i want us to talk a little bit about like how are people being trained nowadays because mm -hmm. you know you made a comment earlier about that i basically took as you know if we just keep stick to the simple stuff, you know, so much of the research and so much of these um, these surveys have really come down to the basic stuff you learn in that first year of applied behavior analysis grad school. It works mm -hmm. and it's great, mm -hmm. and you can use it in a lot of different ways. And it almost feels like people kind of learn how to do it one way, and then they're like, "Oh, mm -hmm. DRA didn't work. Got to move to something more complicated." It's like, no, 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 no. DRA mm -hmm. hasn't actually fully been explored. You did it one way. Mm -hmm. Maybe you didn't identify the right reinforcer. Maybe you didn't identify the right function. Maybe you didn't um, come up with the right reinforcement schedule. Maybe you're accidentally reinforcing the wrong behavior because of when mm -hmm. uh, there's a delay in you implementing reinforcement. Like, there's so many things to it, and, and I think you and I both know, like, this concept of implementation science and how you're doing all these things, like – the average provider is not talking about this stuff. They're not thinking about this stuff. They're just kind of like, 
oh, well, got to move on, got to try this instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I, I embrace parsimony and the, the simplest answer and the simplest, you know, uh, solution, yeah. but I do think what I would always tell the, the folks that I would supervise is, you know, we drop a behavior intervention plan, implement it with darn near perfect integrity, and then I'll be convinced that we have to move on to something else. Right. Um, right. And, and so that's how I've always practiced. But, again, you know, if you're, if you're brand new coming out of school and your supervisor isn't so seasoned and, you know, you're, um, you're just trying to, you know, get your work done or whatnot and, and you're not aware of these broader issues, yeah, it, it, it's harder to, to practice effectively and efficiently. Um, so, yeah, I think we should have some talks about training and practicums and exposure to different ways to manipulate the various tools that we have because a lot of us get set in our ways and depending on who your supervisor was or what your program was, you're going to learn one way to do it and one data sheet to collect it on and, you know, and and that's it. So I think it's with I think it's with um, experience and exposure to different environments and different supervisors and different ways to implement our practice that we get uh, more mm-hmm. sophisticated um, with each new kid or each new client that we see. So yeah, I think there's plenty to discuss in terms of the different ways to look at um, implementing this. Um, you know, from a from an individualized clinician to a larger school system yeah. a school district and you know even at a state level and things like that so yeah, yeah. lots to do <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for being here it was it was great to speak with you it's great to kind of get our our, our first show in the books our first kind mm-hmm. of monthly dialogue together i think everyone at this point probably knows you know we're, we're going to go down that like implementation science um, rabbit hole and um, and knowing us will bounce around and and cover mm-hmm. a, a few different areas in all of this um, but i 'm really excited to uh, to get this going and and to keep these uh these sometimes late night sometimes like po boy full from a big lunch kind of <laughs> conversations that you and I have had over the last couple yep. of years to uh, to a broader audience. This is really cool. Yeah, thanks so much, Rob. I very much look forward uh, to talking with you and sharing our conversations with folks. Like I said, I hope it it helps people out and gets them thinking. And, uh, yeah, look forward to it. Definitely will. Definitely will. And everyone else out there, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I know there's we've covered a lot, in it, and I know there's a lot of uh, things that you guys can definitely take away. Um, you know, my, our goal here is to answer some questions as well as post some questions for you. So, if those questions that, that are being posed in your head, you want to dig deeper into them with us, please don't hesitate. You can reach us at more info at autismtherapies.com. You can also reach us at the Autism Spectrum Therapies Facebook page. Um, Christina, who is always behind the scenes, is always checking, um, answering your questions, um, getting them into uh, to either Hannah or myself so we can kind of chime in and, and give additional information and context for those questions as well. Um, and uh, we will speak to you guys next month. Have a great week. Have a great month. Enjoy the rest of the summer. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.